Why are we so wedded to dieting when it is clear it doesn't work and it may even be hurting us? Shouldn't we know better by now? I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you're listening to Book Club on ReachMD. And with me today is Christy Harrison, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and a certified intuitive eating counselor, and the recent author of the book that we're going to be discussing today, entitled Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. Christy, thank you very much for joining me. Dr. Picker, thank you so much for having me. To begin with, and to set really the stage for our discussion, could you describe what you mean in the book by the diet culture we're all living in. How did we arrive here? It, it wasn't always so. Yeah, it really wasn't. It's, it's sort of particular to this couple of centuries in history. And so what I mean by diet culture is really a system of beliefs and values that worships thinness and equates it to health and moral virtues, promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status, whether that's health status, moral status, or both, and really in diet culture it is both, and demonizes certain ways of eating while elevating others. And so this system of beliefs that is diet culture really took off around the early to mid-1800s or started to take root, rather, in the early to mid-1800s and just continued to explode and flourish in the early 20th century and now into the 21st. And it's sort of taken different forms over the years, but it has its roots back in sort of early 19th century ideas about food and bodies that started to change with kind of um, xenophobic, racist, and misogynist beliefs that were becoming popular at the time about, you know, which bodies and which people were, quote-unquote, better than others. We know that, yeah, like you mentioned in your book, that hundreds of years ago, being overweight or having a large body was considered a sign of being wealthy. It was a good sign. And we've now begun to talk about this obesity epidemic, quite the opposite. Is there really such a thing as an obesity epidemic going on right now? And is it related somehow to the weight loss industry that we hear about? You can't turn the TV on and you can't pick up a newspaper about some new magic that will help us have what they consider an idealized body. Absolutely. It's so rampant. And, you know, I think that the concept of a quote-unquote obesity epidemic is really problematic, and I think that concept itself actually came out of the system of beliefs that is diet culture. It came out of this idea that weight loss is a means of attaining higher status and that uh, thinness is equal to health and moral virtue, and that started to happen around the turn of the 20th century, the late 1990s. We saw the, the idea of a quote-unquote obesity epidemic really take off, spurred on largely by the pharmaceutical industry and the weight loss industry. And this idea of a quote-unquote epidemic itself was spread like an epidemic by journalists covering this idea and scientists repeating this idea in journals. And so we had the sort of birth of the, the idea of an epidemic in the late 1990s that exploded and kind of took over the public imagination around the turn of the 20th century. And, and so, you know, that idea has now really taken hold of medicine and of culture in general. And, you know, I think it's built on a lot of flawed assumptions. The original um, data that were supposedly showed that there was a quote-unquote obesity epidemic were these maps, these CDC maps that a lot of people have probably seen 
showing the percentage of people who are in the so-called obese category in different states. And those maps show the numbers growing year by year. And it's really flawed to look at that and say, oh my gosh, there's this obesity epidemic spreading across the country, the way that people interpreted those maps, because the maps are just showing percentages in each state and not the actual number of people and also not the actual number of pounds that people had gained. So on average, people's weight did creep up a little bit from the, you know, pretty much over time it has been creeping up. Um, but also people's average height has been creeping up over time. And we're not looking at this increase in average height and saying, oh, my gosh, we have a heightest epidemic. Like we have a, you know, a, a tall epidemic we need to cure, right? It's just focusing on weight really is a product of this diet culture and the system of belief. I will say, though, that, you know, the research does show that people's weight tends to go up over time when they diet. And by diet, I mean really any intentional weight loss efforts that they undertake. And so when people try to lose weight, up to two-thirds of the time, they end up regaining more weight than they lost. And up to 98% of the time, they end up regaining at least everything that they lost. And so diets really are ineffective. Intentional weight loss really is ineffective. And it's actually having the opposite of the intended effect over time. Not that there's anything wrong with weight gain or larger body size, because that's another myth perpetuated by diet culture that I really take apart in the book. But, you know, when we say that there's a quote-unquote obesity epidemic, we really need to be looking at the diet culture epidemic that underlies it, this epidemic of people dieting and trying to shrink their bodies. You talk about a body pendulum. And I'd like you to describe it because I think you touched on why does somebody who diets eventually regain it? What is this pendulum that swings past where the weight was that you really began with? Yeah, so really there's this, this thing that I call the restriction pendulum, which is the idea that when you've been dieting and restricting your eating and restricting your, your body size as well, you've sort of pulled yourself over to the side of restriction. And the body inevitably doesn't just land in the middle when you have sort of restricted, had enough with restricting, right? When you've had enough with restricting, it swings over to the side of abundance. It swings over to the side of eating all the food, feeling, you know, sort of out of control with food. And also weight regain, right? That that weight that people lose through restriction and through dieting by any means ends up coming back on pretty quickly oftentimes when they, you know, aren't able to stick to the diet. And really what what's happening is biology, Biology has programmed us not to be, you know, to, to be resilient to famine. And famine is really what our bodies perceive diets to be because in our evolutionary history, anytime food was scarce, that's what was happening. And our bodies evolved to be really able to take care of us and able to survive through famine by regaining more weight than they lost through the famine to protect against the next potential famine, by also having all these different mechanisms to um, turn down our use of energy, our energy consumption, or our energy, um, yeah, energy consu- consumption, and turn up our energy storage in situations of famine. So when you have been dieting for a length of time, and it, you know the length of time sort of varies depending on the person, uh, but we know from the research that it tends to be people's body size and weight loss. You know their weight reaches its lowest point at about six months of any weight loss intervention, and then it starts increasing in about a year. And the rate of weight regain tends to speed up over time. But when you're in that place where you're sort of at the lowest point of your weight loss effort, the body has all these mechanisms that start kicking in. So your hunger hormones go way up. Your fullness hormones go down. Your body temperature is turned down. 
your um, you know, desire to expend energy is turned down, even at the micro level. So even if you're not, you know, you haven't changed your gym routine necessarily, you might be using fewer micro movements in your day, talking with your hands less or um, tapping your foot less, you know, all these different ways that your body turns down your energy expenditure in order to protect you from famine. And so those are the reasons why when people try to intentionally lose weight, their body ends up having a whole different agenda. In my office, patients would come in on a pretty regular basis with the newest book, the newest diet, and ask me what I would think about it. And of course, they got a blank look. I was usually totally unfamiliar. I was being buried by just trying to keep up with the New England Journal of Medicine or Annals of Internal Medicine. And they were often disappointed that I wasn't, quote, up to date on the newest data, and I use that word in quotation, having to do with weight reduction. Research shows that most of these diets have really not meant the criteria that our patients demand of a new drug or a new device. And yet they're only too willing to jump on board the newest, the newest fad. Um, I date myself because of the year I went into practice, the Stillman diet was the rage. This was, and you probably are too young to remember this, but this was drinking eight glasses of water every day and it would be guaranteed to lose weight. Why do patients accept fads rather than scientific data and there is really very little data to supply this. And, and I'd like to digress to something you talk in your book about healthy volunteers that were put on diets, I believe in the 1940s, to substantiate whether dieting had any beneficial effects and how they would maintain it. Could you tell me a little bit about that really very old research and what happened to these very healthy volunteers who participated in diet controls? Yes, it's wild how little dieting meets the criteria for evidence-based medicine, and yet how much people are still hungry for it and still so willing to believe it. And I think it really goes back to this nexus of diet culture, this system of beliefs and values that underlies kind of the entirety of Western culture. And that includes medicine, and that includes, you know, a lot of doctors it sounds like you're, you are one of the good ones in terms of your practice where you weren't actually recommending these fad diets to people and you were paying attention to the real evidence base, which is awesome. But I think, you know, a lot of physicians get sort of caught up in wanting to help people, you know, give them what they want. And then some physicians in some corners of medicine, the medical industry, are also really caught up in diet culture themselves in terms of running uh, diet programs or doing research on diets or being involved with the pharmaceutical industry and diet drugs. And so you know, I think there's this incredible pressure kind of on all of us, on physicians, on the medical field, and on patients and everyday people to shrink their body or figure out the, the right diet that's going to make them lose weight. And people are constantly being told that there is a so-called obesity epidemic and that you know, being at a higher weight is going to be harmful to their health and they need to lose weight by any means necessary. And so I think that that pressure and that belief system that people have so internalized really sort of blinds them to, to the ineffectiveness of diets. And whereas, you know, any other drug that, or intervention that had such a terrible failure rate, people wouldn't accept. I think when it comes to diets, they're willing to roll the dice. They're willing to accept tremendous odds for the, the slight possibility that they might be that, you know, two to five percent 
people that can actually lose weight and keep it off and that the magic diet is just right around the corner and they need to just keep looking. And I think the reason they're willing to accept that is because system of beliefs that demonizes larger bodies and elevates smaller ones, demonizes certain foods as quote-unquote bad and elevates other foods as quote-unquote good, it's just so strong and so deeply ingrained in all of us. And it's made to feel so important, especially with around the so-called obesity epidemic, because now it's not just seen as a matter of aesthetics, also seen as a matter of health, a matter of survival, really. And so, of course, are are going to want that. So what I'm really trying to do with this book is to call the system of beliefs that we all have sort of unintentionally been steeped in and just taken unquestioningly like the water that we swim in and, and call it out and say, look at this. This is a system of beliefs that was actually constructed by forces outside of ourselves, and we don't have to accept it anymore. We don't have to, you know, participate in it anymore. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Book Club Reach MD, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. And joining me today is Christy Harrison, and we're discussing her recent book, Anti Diet Reclaiming Your Time, Money, Well Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. Since I just mentioned the title, why don't you tell me what intuitive eating means? Yeah, absolutely. So, intuitive eating is a philosophy and a practice of eating that puts people back in touch with their body's innate cues about hunger, fullness, satisfaction, and what they want to eat, what, when, how much, and, you know, whether they want to eat. And so we all are born with that innate capacity. We're all, we're all born with that innate skill. You know, babies are able to make noise when they're hungry. They have particular signs that their parents learn over time showing that they're hungry. They have no qualms about it, no compunction about saying that they're hungry and getting their needs met for food. And they similarly are able to, you know, have enough and get satisfied and then turn their attention away from food and onto other things once they've had enough. And then the cycle repeats once they're hungry again, they smell food or are around food and their, their hunger level is high enough, they will want food again. And really all animals have this capacity to nourish themselves, to know when they're hungry, know when they're full, know what they want to eat. And it's not a big deal. But because of diet culture and also because of other factors that can interfere in people's relationship with food, things like food insecurity, medical trauma around food or digestive issues, all of those things can interfere with people's innate capacity to know when they want to eat and how much they want to eat and what they want to eat and know when they're full and satisfied and ready to move on to other things. And especially with regard to diet culture, that ability to feel full and satisfied and move on is so taken away from people by this constant starvation that's imposed on them by diets. And, you know, it's very normal, as I was talking about with that restriction pendulum idea, that when we've been restricted of food, we're going to end up swinging over to the side of feeling out of control. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who come to me, and I myself had this experience back in the day when I was a dieter as well, that I was like, I just don't know when I can, when to stop eating. If I were you know, given unlimited food, I probably would never stop. And I hear that from patients all the time. I hear that from people who say, you know, if I have chips in the house, I won't stop until the entire king size bag is gone, or I won't stop until I'm at the bottom of the bowl of the box of cereal. And so, you know, teaching people to get back in touch with those cues that help them know when to eat and know when they're satisfied is the practice of intuitive eating that I teach. So intuitive eating kind of has two 
you know, interpretations, right? The one is the, the innate inborn skill set that we have, and the other is the skill set that dietitians like myself and other intuitive eating counselors teach, which is how to get back to that innate sensibility, how to get back to your cues around food and how to reject diet culture and not let it control you anymore. Since most of our audience are physicians or other kind of health providers, I've become aware that people with large bodies are marginalized. They're marginalized like other groups. I work in a museum dealing with uh, bullying, and it's pretty apparent that what I am now hearing is the number one cause of bullying in eighth and ninth graders is people who have large bodies. These issues are really a, a question of social justice, and shouldn't we begin to recognize it as such and approach it as we have other issues that involve social justice? Absolutely. I, yeah, 100%. I think it's, it's very much an issue of social justice. You know, body size discrimination, weight-based discrimination is, we know, a risk factor for people's health and well-being. There's lots and lots of data on that that I talk about in the book. Also, it's just a matter of fundamental human rights. And just in the way that our society has thankfully evolved to be much more aware of and awake to the other social justice issues that are so important, like the need for racial equality, gender equality, you know, acceptance of different sexual orientations, acceptance of different gender identities, all of the rest. We also need to evolve as a society to accept different body sizes and accept the fact that people's body size really exists on a spectrum and that just as we have diversity in all other forms of human characteristics like hair color, skin color, eye color, height, shoe size, et cetera, et cetera. There's also this inherent and innate diversity of body sizes that should be accepted as part of the tapestry of human experience that is so rich and wonderful. And it's really unfortunate that larger bodies are so stigmatized in our society because we see a lot of the same um, issues cropping up for people in larger bodies as we see for people who are marginalized for other reasons, say racism and the color of their skin or sexism. And we see this in the research that people in larger bodies are um, stigmatized for their size. Actually, people across the body spectrum who are stigmatized because of their weight and their size have cortisol reactions, stress reactions in experimental settings, very much like people who are exposed to racism in experimental settings. And, you know, at, at the population level and epidemiological studies, we see a profound um, significant between people who experience or between experiencing um, discrimination and a whole host of health outcomes that are often blamed on by itself, but that can actually likely be better explained by the stigma that people in larger bodies, such as heart disease, diabetes, higher mortality rates, and chronic inflammation, which we know is a part of the disease process for many diseases, and that we know that stigma of all kinds increases people's levels of chronic inflammation. So I really think this is a social justice issue. This is a public health issue. This is a human rights issue. And we need to make body size accepted and included in the categories of, of other identities that we protect in the society. Towards the end of your book, Chrissy, you quote Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who said, there comes a point where we need to stop pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. 
In closing, could you tell me why you use this quotation and what is the takeaway that our audience should take at this time? Yeah, you know, that quotation really spoke to me because I'm a dietitian and I work with individuals to heal their relationships with food and their bodies. But at a certain point, I just started to feel frustrated that I was seeing so many people who are struggling in their relationships with food and struggling with disordered eating and wondering what the cultural and social context of that was. And, you know, that's what led me to study diet culture and to really dive deep into the content of the book. And what's led me to believe that really the issue is such an upstream issue. It's not a matter of individuals healing their relationships with food in their bodies in a vacuum as, you know, one at a time. Certainly healing your relationship with food in your body is important as an individual if you're struggling. But, you know, the, the larger issue is why are so many of us struggling? And the answer is diet culture. The problem is diet culture. That's why we're all falling into this river. And, you know, to pull people out and make sure that people don't fall into this river of diet culture anymore, I think we really need to start dismantling it at the larger cultural level. And I'm so grateful for people like you who are doing this work and spreading this message to the medical field. Um, We need more doctors like you. We need more physicians on board with this project of helping stop diet culture and dismantle it and help stop people from falling in this river of body shame and self-loathing because there's so much more to life than that. And that's what we owe to our patients. Well, I really appreciate you spending the time with me. I really encourage our audience to look at your book, Anti-Diet, Reclaiming Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. And I would be remiss not to say that Christy has a podcast called Food Psych. So thanks again for joining me. This is Dr. Maurice Pickard, and if you've missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash book club to download this podcast and many others in this series. Thank you all for listening.